Kia ora, koa and O'Brien tuku ingoa, e kaurungi o Waituhi o Tamaki, no mai haere mai. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2022 event. We hope you enjoy it. Grand. Shaped by the forces of 1970s Ireland and by a mother raging against her Hemden life, broadcaster, writer and podcaster Noelle McCarthy escaped Ireland for party town Auckland in the early 2000s, seeking a new world far away from the cultural fabric of her homeland. Many years later, and now a mother herself and a recovering alcoholic, she returns to bid her mother farewell and to reckon with her ghosts. The resulting memoir, Grand, is a moving meditation on mothers and daughters, on running away and homecoming, on the generational legacies we each carry. She speaks with Emma Espiner. Tihei Modi Ora, Kite Tari Tune, Te Papa Etakotune, Nga Manafenua Oterohene, Nga Manuhiri, Kuahuihui Maine Itenera, Tena Koto, Tena Koto, Tena Koto Katoa. Wow, Modi Ora Etifana Oti Waitohi Otamaki, the Auckland Writers Festival. Welcome to this session, Grand, in conversation with Noel McCarthy. My name is Emma Espiner, and it's my enormous privilege to be here today to celebrate our dear friend, Noelle. <laughs> Noelle's memoir, Grand, Becoming My Mother's Daughter, was published this year by Penguin Random House. It launched to widespread critical acclaim, uh, and if you've read the book, you know why. It's deep, it's dark, it's funny, there are vampires, and it's drawn from Noel's life in Ireland and here in Aotearoa. Our conversation today uh, will be in three parts. We'll talk about the content in the book, um, Noel's relationship with her mother, her mother's death, the drinking, and everything else that made its way into the book. We'll talk about the process of writing, inspirations and challenges, and then we'll turn to the future and the aspirations that Noelle has for her life now and the work that she is doing. The author Rachel King reviewed Grand for the Newsroom website and she said, you'd never wish material this good <laughs> for a memoir on anyone. <laughs> now it's Sunday of festival week, so in terms of housekeeping, um, everyone probably knows what the deal is, but I do know that there are people who have come today specifically for Noelle, and so just to recap, um, please wear a mask if you can, um, you're able to leave if you feel unwell, and if there's an emergency, you can follow the instructions of the festival staff. We will attempt to allow some time for <laughs> one or two short questions uh, at the end. Um, but of course, Noelle will also be at the book signing table in the foyer afterwards. Please join me in welcoming Noelle McCarthy. <laughs> <laughs> Kia ora, Emma. Thank you so much for that. You know, before you even say your first question, I just want to say how proud my mother would be that I'm sitting here being interviewed by a doctor. <laughs> like, oh this my one's God. For you, <laughs> that I know a doctor, that there may be doctors in the audience. 
because I know your cohort is here as well. So look, we're off to a flying start. Oh, that's I'm great. That's so great. excited. And welcome home. Um, Thank you. We'll have a, a little reading shortly um, that relates to this whenua to Tamaki Makoto. But I just wanted to start at the beginning. Why did you decide to tell your story? I didn't want to tell this particular story for a very long time. You know, that's the, that's the irony of it, because this relationship that I had with my mother, Carol, for so long, you know, for as long as I can remember throughout my teenage years, my, my childhood, my adult life, was a source of real embarrassment to me. Like, I, I was just very, very ashamed of it. You know, I was very ashamed that I couldn't get along with my mother, mm. you know, and, and I would... Um, sort of idolize my friends' mothers. I would look for different mother figures. Some of them here today, <laughs> delighted. But, you know, I, I had that sense of, you know, carrying this sort of dirty secret around with me. And um, it never occurred to me as something that I'd write about, you know, that I, I wouldn't even talk about it, really. Um, my relationship with my mother did get better, you know, like it got better after I became a mother after I had my daughter. A lot of the tension in our relationship um, had dissipated. But what happened was she got sick. You know, like three years ago, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. And I was in New Zealand. I was living in Featherston, where I still live. And, um, and, and what happened was, you know, so many of those old feelings, so many of those childhood feelings of those especially those teenage feelings, you know, those feelings of like powerlessness and rage and all of these things it, it resurfaced, you know, they came back. And because so much of our communication was on the telephone, you know, because I was in New Zealand and, and, and my mom was in Cork, and the telephone had always been the site of our, you know, our, our worst power struggles in a way. That's not really in the book, but, you know, she would, as a teenager, of course, like we had a landline. This is many, many moons ago. Contested territory. Yeah, in the there. 90s. And she would get to the phone first, you know. So I had a lot of, um, you know, which was always just terrible. Um, and, and so I had a lot of, of that come back, you know, that was sort of re-triggered. And I was having these feelings. And, and the other thing that started happening was that I was having memories from childhood, which would mm. surface, you know, and, and they were very short and sharp, and they would um, just sort of spring into my consciousness. The first one was, you know, that memory of, of my mother and her friend meeting me after school with the rabbit. And, and, you know, that was the first. And initially, like, all of these memories had a particular quality. Like, they felt like a dream, well, like, like a nightmare, you know? And, and I would text my brother or my sister and say, did that happen? You know, did that really happen? And, um, and so I started writing those down. And I, I, and, and I cannot, like, overstate how not a book that was. Yeah. You know, at this point, like it's easy. I remember the pieces of paper. Yeah. Yeah. It, it post-it notes. Yeah. You know, just little things. And I started to to write those down. And and I guess you know I continued to generate them. And over a period of time, realized that um you know that there was potentially a narrative there. And I you know was able to find it. And that had a lot to do with things I was doing in other areas of my life, other work you know, that I was doing at the time, which 
mm. you know all about, obviously. And we'll come back to that, um, that idea of memory and subjectivity um, yeah. in a little bit, but would you like to share a little reading? Yeah. yeah. Sure. Um, I'm going to read um, a piece from, this is page 146 of the book, and um, it's a piece about Auckland, and I wrote it um, quite early on, quite early on in the genesis of, of Grand, um, as part of a writing course um, that I was doing with Rene, mm. um, the um, playwright and writer. And um, I had to generate 4,000 words a week, which I didn't realize when I signed up for <laughs> the course. And so, you know, th this came from that sort of free writing. Newly sober and raw as a rubbed eyelid, my God is in the sky tower. I come home at midnight, one, two, three o'clock in the morning, rattling from a night in front of a lemonade, pretending there's vodka in it and open the ranch slider on the mean little balcony of my apartment on Pitt Street. I sit on the ridge between the slider and the tiles in the cold August air and smoke Marlboro lights that I hate the taste of and look out over the city to where the hypodermic rises into the sky a block and a half away and I ask someone, anyone, to look after me. I don't know if they will or if they won't, but the asking becomes something of a ritual comforting in itself at the end of another long day of uncertainty. Everything I do now tires me, an exhaustion that gets so deep into your bones you can't get out of the shower, and when you do, you just stand there for ages, shivering and dazed with a towel around you. I go to work at the radio station every day without a hangover, hating it. At least I wasn't bored when I was dealing to the shakes every morning jamming my elbow into the gap between my hard drive and the computer monitor to brace my hand enough to hold a pot of yogurt, repairing to the disabled toilet afterwards to vomit it up discreetly, pushing my fingers far enough down the back of my throat to get the bile up, swiping my streaming eyes in the mirror, cleaning my teeth with my index finger. But I go to work, just like everyone else does, take myself down Vincent Street in the cold every morning, I make soup from a Jamie Oliver recipe that requires an awful lot of celery. I put the whole pot of it in the fridge because I don't have any plastic containers. I stop answering texts that I used to. Some of them, anyway. I still go out constantly. I drink a lot of V, and I try not to hear the sound of my own stupid voice banging in my temples. People might think that when you stop drinking, things get better. They don't. They get worse to begin with. Of course they do. I'm bare, flayed, missing a layer. You were talking about checking your memories with your brother um, and this idea of the subjectivity of memory and what, what you remember. And memoirs by nature are obsessed with this idea um, and the, the slippery unreliability of it. How did you cope with that, knowing it would always just be your memories that you were writing down? I think I had to um, embrace it, you know? I had to own mm. that, because it's there with you from the very beginning, you know? As soon as you start writing about your own life, 
especially, I suppose, in my case, you know, where, you know, I was drinking so much at different times of my life. Obviously, like, my memory was mm. unreliable. <laughs> like, <laughs> but, but also, you know, it's a lot more subtle than that as well, isn't it? You know, there's, there's a famous quote, I can't remember who says it, but, you know, if, you, if, if six people see a car crash, six people are going to see six different mm. versions of the same event. Mm. And I bottom. think... <laughs> and I think, you know, memory and families can be contested territory because everybody grew up in a different version of that family, you know. So I would check things with my brother, with my brothers and my sister. And then sometimes the answer they would give me, you know, the version of events they would give me had nothing to do with mine. You know, they had seen things from a very different angle. And there was a while where I was really paralyzed by that. You know, it was probably about halfway through writing Grant when, when you know, I, I, if I, when I would come out of the actual writing process and think about what I was doing and think about sort of the enormity of it for me personally, because my mom, you know, she, she hadn't died very long beforehand, and my family was still grieving. Mm. And the idea that I would write something which was, you know, not only painful, but also inaccurate, really bedeviled yeah. me for a long time. But I guess mm. I had to, you know, I had to embrace that. Like, I had to... Um, did you consider waiting? No. Yeah. I Why? never did, and that's that? interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I had to write it, Yeah. you know. It, it, the, the writing process and the events of my life sort of um, kept colliding with each other in these strange ways. You know, by the time I had the phone call from um, Dr. Byrne in the book, I had already begun writing, mm. uh, um, you know, had started writing down those memories. And at that point, um, you know, that I had to make that decision to sort of leave New Zealand and go to Ireland for what was going to be you know, the end of my mother's life, although, you know, I was trying to time it so I would miss that <laughs> and, you know, just do some administrative stuff. Um, and that didn't work, but that's another story. Um, but I had already started writing, so it meant that by the time I got to Ireland, I was writing. I was just, you know, mm. I was doing that cold-blooded thing of sort of... Watching everyone. Watching mm. everyone and mm. writing down everything. Mm. And you've said to me previously that, um, that now that the memories that you've chosen to put into the book are out there, it's changed your memory of your mother. I really wasn't expecting that, you know, and that's because of everybody who's read Grand, you know, it's because of the way that they've embraced my mother, you know, and, and I remember the first time someone described her to me as charismatic, you know, I was like, I mean, I knew that, I knew that, I suppose, but it's very different to have, you know, to have it told to you by someone who's never met her and has no idea um, about her, you know, has and, and never will. And because writing this book was such an enjoyable experience and because, you know, the connections that I've had with readers, because everyone who talks to me about Grand, you know, they might say, Mammy was a charismatic character, but they talk to me not about my family, but about your families. Mm. You know, that, that's what's come from this. And that's been such a beautiful and, and affirming experience that, you know, now when I look at 
my mother, because I have her photo, you know, it's, it's next to my bed with her giant flower, you know, and, and I can't help but feel like, you know, she and I are somehow in this venture together, mm. you know, like this, she's a gift, you know, she's this gift of a, of a person that mm. I, you know, I did not appreciate that until mm. I started writing about her. Mm, killed her. Um, Charlotte Grimshaw was actually saying in her workshop yesterday that, um, in the memoir workshop, that all of the people that have read her book and approached her want to talk about their own mothers. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. You know, and, and again, like, I was such a bad judge of the, the right thing to write about. You know, for years and years and years, it never occurred to me to write a book, uh, you know, about one's family. Like, mm. I love David Sedaris, and who doesn't, you know, but I also felt like, oh, I couldn't do that, you know, like, the, that that wouldn't be interesting for anyone and incredibly painful for me. Yeah. <laughs> and it was only after, you know, I got married and um, my husband met my family. It was before we got married, actually, you know, the night he came to Cork for the first time, we, we had been living in France and, I, and with a great deal of trepidation, I brought him home to... Because <laughs> I had to, you know, at that point. Um, questions were being asked <laughs> and... Um, we got into Cork Airport on a Wednesday night, and um, and I hadn't told him much. You know, I hadn't said much. I have a mother. I have a father. You know, <laughs> you will meet them at some point. And Cork Airport isn't a very busy airport. It's quite a small airport. You know, as soon as you step out of the um, departures or the arrivals lounge, you're there. And the only person standing in front of us was my mother wearing like a giant pair of novelty mm -hmm. sunglasses. Like the, the green ones, you know, <laughs> yeah. that you get for St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> Absolutely no context for this whatsoever. You know, didn't say anything about it, mm -hmm. just, just stood there. And she had one of those disposable cameras that she'd, she'd, she'd found a stash of them somewhere. And, um, and was just taking photos of his reaction. <laughs> You know, and she'd staged the whole thing. And because I was just so, you know, like annoyed, it didn't occur to me to like give him some context. You know, <laughs> I was like, this is what she does. But you know, it was probably after a couple of days of that kind of thing that he said to me, you know, are you writing any of this down? <laughs> like, are you, <laughs> are you taking note of this? <laughs> like, I could tell you, this is, this is good material, you know, they're good stuff. He'd met my brother, he'd met my younger brother as well at, at that point. It was like, you know, going through a very sort of beat poetry phase of his life. So he was very, um, he, he was very struck yeah. by the richness yeah, it was a of the material. Yeah. But, yeah, but, you know, it was only later when, um, when my mother got sick you know, that that became something that I realized had, an, had a real energy for me when I was writing about mm. it. And it's interesting that people, you know, have said, like you say, that she's this charismatic individual, and you, and you, but you are, um, uh, you know, you've, re you've revealed some unpleasant things about your mother, but you're also incredibly unsparing um, about yourself. Um, what was that like? And, and were you conscious that you, you have to be honest? the story to read well? The first answer that comes to mind is that it was a relief. Mm. Like, it was really relieving. I feel like up until, you know, writing this, uh, there was so much about myself that I spent an awful lot of time, whether subtly or, you know, unconsciously concealing. Mm. Like, you know, I, I, 
one of my earliest memories, I just really wanted to fit in. I always just really wanted to fit in. I always felt like I didn't, and I felt like somehow I have um, the luxury of realizing this before everybody else. You know, I know that I am different, you know, that I am not the same as other people, that my family doesn't have as much money as, you know, your family, if it was a girl from school, or whatever else, you know, whatever else it was when, you know, whatever needed to be concealed you know, like my mother's drinking, for mm. example, you know, all of these things. So to finally sit down and just write it down, you mm. know, just say, this is how weird and creepy and angry and uh, venal I am. That was, that was huge. This is so freeing <laughs> and embarrassing. And that's one of my favorite, one of the favorite anecdotes is when you're, you know, vomiting into a toilet mm. and you're yelling out, I'm so bored. And um, I really felt that. <laughs> Um, and your rage, and I just wondered, now that you're sober, what's happened to your rage? Did it disappear, or have you just, like, caged the wolf? Yeah, you know, and the, the sturdiness of the cage <laughs> depends on any given day, doesn't it, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, my earliest memories are of anger, mm. you know, whether it's mine or other people's, and one of the things I realized from writing Grand, which again was very, it was a great relief, was that, you know, I, I was tired of picking fights that I was never going to be able to win. Mm. You know, the rage that I felt with my mother, with my situation in life, later on with the circumstances of my own life, even though, you know, on paper it was a great life. Mm. All of those things, you, you know, they were internal like they they were so they're, they're sort of part of me mm. you know and and i had to find a way of just you have to find a way of living with that don't mm. you because mm. otherwise it will it will eat you up but the great thing about a book you know or a podcast series or a whatever it is is that it is a vessel for that and and you know what there's things to be angry about aren't there yeah, you know right. yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it was not misplaced yeah yeah and yeah. and and i suppose now i do find vessels that um places to put it yeah um i wondered how the book had changed or whether it had changed your position um you know there's a lot of public discourse at the moment about sobriety and alcohol related harm and you know right from the sort of full noise advocacy end to the you know, people are just trying to deal with their shit day by day. Mm. Um, where are you on that spectrum, and did the book change that? Um, I was thinking about this yesterday because, you know, in, in some ways my drinking was very public because, you know, I was in Auckland in the early 2000s when there was an actual, like, weird celebrity culture. Mm. Like, remember the, like, when the About Town had, like, 10 pages in it? and. Mm -hmm. And everyone was afraid of the gossip columnists. You know, there was this really, and it was a real Auckland thing, I think. Mm, you yeah. know, like we didn't uh, have that in Wellington. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know that was kind of my reality, like working in media mm. in Auckland. So you know, it didn't take long for me to get a reputation as, you know, as being a party girl or being a bit wild. And you know, this is the era of like Lindsay Lohan and Amy Winehouse and all of that. You know, like that that was kind of part of the air that we breathed. But my, like, stopping drinking and becoming sober, that was really private. You know, that was not something that, um, that I talked about. And that was partly, and you know, this makes me laugh and it makes me a bit sad to admit it now, but I was really ashamed. Mm. Like, I was really ashamed that I had to stop drinking. 
because I thought I wasn't doing it right. Yeah. You know, I thought that, you know, people who could drink successfully, that was a mark of adulthood or sophistication or just being able to organize your life right, right? But for me, I couldn't do that. And so I just felt like I was beaten for a bit. And I suppose, you know, again, my story is discovering that, like, recovery is different to abstinence and, and there's a whole path there. But what I love now is that, you know, in the, as you've said, like in the last five or so, not, not even, like maybe it's only in the last couple of years. Very recent, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, Guyon's documentary. Mm. What was that last year? Yeah. Yeah, and, and Patty Gower's work. And there's so much, you know, there's so much work going on in that space and we're interrogating it and looking at our relationship with alcohol and all of that. And I, you know, I mean, God bless the next generations coming through and being sober curious mm. and, you know, understanding that there's so much choice. And, and you know, all of that said, I don't want to be a poster yeah. child for anybody, you know, like, or, or sort of um, have anything other than my own very personal experience. But what writing Grant showed me was that, like, I don't know if alcoholism is genetic, you know, I don't know the science on that, but, but I was the inheritor of mm. a cultural and social and spiritual lineage, you know, mm. that had come down to me through the women in my family. Mm. And I had to, um, you know, as well as sort of reckon with myself and do all of that stuff, I also had to look at that, like look at mm. that cultural context. Mm. And it's really interesting, I, um, a few of the reviewers have slipped into calling your mother an alcoholic. Yeah. And I know yeah. when you talked to Kim Hill, you said that you were very careful about not ascribing that label to her because she's not taken it for herself. That's right. Why, yeah. is, why, why is that so important? Because it's identification, mm. you know, and everybody, like, the, the, it's so funny, you know, the worst fights I would have with my mother were semantics. You know, I would say, you're an alcoholic. And she would say, I'm not an alcoholic, you know? And the word itself took on this incredibly loaded meaning. You know, I remember writing it out in a note which would then be torn into tiny pieces, you know, the, the rage mm. she had about being labeled like that. And of course, you know, the irony for me sitting in a meeting and, and self-identifying as an addict and an alcoholic, I thought that would kill me, you know? I was like, oh my God, like what? You know, this is the worst joke ever. But you know, now some days when I identify as, as an addict and an alcoholic, that's the truest sentence I've said all day, mm. and it's going to remain the truest thing I've said all day, but that is a very personal mm. choice. Yeah. We'll move on just in a second to talking about the actual work of the writing, um, yeah. but what have your family said about the book? <laughs> <laughs> um, the first person I sent the book to was my sister. Mm. And um, I'd always thought my sister was quite a, a, a slow reader. <laughs> <laughs> I sent her 15 chapters. I sent it to, I don't know why I did this, but I decided to send it to her in two bits. Like I was thinking, I, I don't know what I was thinking. I sent her the first 15 chapters. And maybe like, I honestly think it was about 90 minutes later. <laughs> send the rest, <laughs> just that. Oh God, you know, and, and so I sent the rest and because of the time difference, I had to wait, you know, I had to wait until, I think it might've been 3 a.m. And um, she, she texted me and she said, I can hear mammy. Mm. Yeah. And my dad, I sent, he, he you know, 
took his time with it as well. And he, he, um, he'd rung a couple of times during the process to say, this is a bit weird, isn't it? Like, <laughs> being in a book. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it is a bit weird. And then he, t he rang at the end and he said, you know, I've never drunk 16 pints in my life. Change that. <laughs> um, and that was the only thing he wanted changed, you know, yeah. because I had, <laughs> I had sent it particularly to my sister and my, my father. My brothers have a different relationship with mm. me and my writing. You know, they're both writers as well, and they had both decided they didn't want to read it, mm. and that was fine. You know, like yeah. I, um, I went to our high priestess and friend Mary Carr mm. for advice in this area. And in the Art of Memoir, she talks about, you know, waiting until you're ready to send the material and waiting until the material's at, at a place of readiness. Um, but then also sending it, mm. you know, and, and allowing people who have been written about to sort of participate in that mm. and, you know, sometimes choose their pseudonym and whatever else. But for me, you know, my sister and my dad were the two sort of really important people to, um, to get feedback from. And I was pretty, um, you know, I was far more relaxed than I thought I'd be, Emma, about saying, I'll change whatever you want me to change. Yeah. You know, I was ready to do that, and, um, but I'm really glad they didn't yeah. want me to change anything. And, and yeah, I mean, it felt like it was a compulsion to get, yeah. to get all this out when, it, when you did, as you said. And um, at Charlotte's workshop yesterday, there were, you know, a lot of women of a particular age who are ready to write a memoir. You said to me, you had to be this age yeah. to write it, notwithstanding the events around it. Yeah. What, what's that about? I think there's two parts to that. Like, one is really simple. Like, I needed to be in, in a situation where, like, financially, I could do it, <laughs> right? So I needed to move to Featherstone and, um, and, and do that, you know? And, and I wish someone had told me that earlier in my life, that if I wanted to have artistic freedom, sort your sort your rent and your mortgage situation out, mm. you know, like that, that was, I think the Duplass brothers talk about this in their book as well, they're really big on sort of encouraging creatives to move to small towns and, <laughs> and like buy a house if you can with your friends and let all your other artist friends live in it and sort of, you know, let, sort of make that work. Mm. But for me, you know, moving out of Auckland allowed me a, a lot of freedom in terms of how I would how I would work and what work I would take on. Mm. So that's a really basic yeah. um, part of it. But the other reason I think was like, just getting experience in how to handle a narrative. Mm. Because, you know, Grant's a super emotional book, I think, you know, like it was super mm. emotional to write it. But I hope it's also a, a, a careful book in terms of construction and, you know, giving it attention to mm. what, to the mechanics of a book and a narrative. Mm. And I needed, it's funny, I needed you actually, because, you know, we worked together on Getting Better, um, your story. And, and it was really looking at um, all of the interviews we did as part of that and looking at the daily reality of your life as a medical student in a system that, you know, is not doing right mm. by your people, that showed me that, like, a real-life story can have everything you want from a story, you know? It can have tension, it can have drama, it can have pathos. And English admin. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of admin <laughs> and a lot of driving. Mm. But, you know, you can actually, um, you can have all of those things in a non-fiction context. Mm. You just need to, 
you just need to organize it, right? Like yeah. you just need to know what you're doing with your story. And that's a lovely segue actually into, I mean, you mentioned um, Renee's memoir writing mm -hmm. course, and I know that the first rule of Fight Club is we don't talk about Fight Club, but <laughs> um, how did Renee and the course co like contribute to the creation of the book? Was it the discipline? Oh, uh, like that, that was huge. So, uh, you know, just for some backstory context, what happened was, uh, for me, I was generating a lot of material mm. for Grant around the time that, uh, you know, we, I think we'd finished working on Getting Better and I was writing my little vignettes and sort of my head was full of them. And, um, and I said to Emma, I I'm really frustrated. Like, I, 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 I feel like I'm generating a lot of stuff. I have a lot of momentum, but I have no direction. I don't really know what I'm doing. And because I was living in Featherston and, you know, working full time, it wasn't really, I couldn't really go to a, a class or, you know, go go and do some learning. And you, I think, had done a session. Mm. No, I hadn't. I just heard about it. And so you, it was, you, you did it first, yeah. Yeah, mm. and, and you said, I, I think she's, um, I, she teaches a, a memoir course, and I think she, I, I just think you'd really like her. You know, I think she'd be great value. And um, so I emailed, mm. just like she has a website, and I just sent off a cold email saying, you know, I'd really like to do your course. I thought it was correspondence, but it actually wasn't. You know, it was actually a classroom course. But thanks be to COVID, <laughs> she, she, was, um, she was teaching it remotely. So um, that gave me, I, I had a deadline. You know, I had 4,000 mm. words due every week and, and it, had to be, it had to be there. And it had to be there at midday because midday, it didn't have to be there at 10 past 12 <laughs> or half past 12. And it was 4,000 words, which was 10 pages. And I remember once sending 11 pages and that did not go down well. <laughs> you know, the discipline of the course mm. was very strictly enforced. Mm. And it helped me to generate a lot of material, but it also, and this was really important, Rene was the first person who told me, besides my husband, that what I was writing was significant in terms of subject matter. Mm. You know, she said, being obsessed with your mother like this and being obsessed with this story is, um, is important. You know, it's worth mm. writing about. And I needed that. Like, I needed someone to affirm that. Mm. Mm. Um, and in terms of the craft, I mean, the, um, a lot of your characters come to life through the dialogue. <laughs> and dialogue is just fiendishly difficult. Oh, like, did you know that you'd be good at that? Absolutely no idea. And I wasn't. I was really bad at dialogue. You know, like, all my life I've idolised novelists. I always just, you know, you know, that was my first solace. Like, Bram Stoker's Dracula, Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories, you know, the Bronte sisters, all of these things that I, you know, I venerated and loved. So when I first started trying to write, which is about 10 years ago, in Ireland, um, I started trying to write fiction. And there were many parts of my writing of fiction that were bad, but, <laughs> you know, the absence of plot, the complete sort of <laughs> solipsism of the characters. But it was the dialogue was the worst, <laughs> I would say. I mean, people talk like they were in Jane Austen, except they were like cops, you know? It, it, was, it was horrific, like I, I, just so bad. But, you know, making that shift to writing about real people in real life, I had those voices in my head anyway, right? Like, I knew how my parents talked. And Cork, if anyone has been there or, or knows it, like, there's a particular cadence to the way people speak there. Like, it's a very up and down. And, and once I had that, 
it just sort of, you know, like it just mm. went from there. But I did start obsessively like <laughs> writing things down anytime any member of my family was on the phone. You know, there'd be a moment and they go, are you writing this down? I'd say, yes, yes, I am writing this down. <laughs> Tell me about my cousin in the funeral home. Write it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so I started listening. And then towards the end, when I was feeling like, you know, I was quite obsessed with getting those rhythms right. So I started listening to a lot of Irish radio and I started listening to um, TV shows, you know, because I haven't lived in Ireland. Mm -hmm. You know, I hadn't been, aside from those two weeks at the end of my mother's life, I hadn't been to Ireland, you know, or lived in Ireland for any extended period of time for like many years. So I was, I was just, and also like, Cork people are very unforgiving. You know, you, you know what it's like. Like, you don't want to read a book and be like, mm, you know, that sounds a bit plastic or a bit inauthentic. Yeah. yeah. Um, were there any other influences on Grand, apart from stalking your family members, um, writers <laughs> or artists that, you know, inspired or nourished you while you were doing that oh, work? Oh, so many. Stephen King. Oh, yes, yeah. It's funny, my husband said to me not to mention Stephen King. <laughs> he said, listen, there's always, I've done a couple of these now, and he said, there's always a moment where you start talking about Stephen King, and people go, yeah, it's stiffen. It's like... He'll be very annoyed that I've enabled you. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I... I I tried not to read too many books while I was writing this because, you know, you're always mm. afraid it'll soak in. But I did reread The Shining, and, and I think that was very... <laughs> for comfort. <laughs> but, you know, like, I'd read The Shining and been frightened by The Shining and kind of loved The Shining. Obviously, you know, it's resonating on so many levels about, you know... Um, alcoholism and isolation, but I reread The Shining after um, becoming a parent, and, um, and it destroyed me, you know, a as a portrait of the love a child can feel for a damaged and dangerous parent, you mm. know, it it's, it's, it's almost sort of without parallel, I can't think of another emotionally a sort of rich, you know, portrayal of that. It just happens to be horror. And I reread it, and I had I had written the bones of the scene, you know, where I say goodbye to my mother um, when it happened. You know, I wrote it on the bus going to the airport, just to get it down, you know, mm. just to have it. And and so I had that version in, you know, what would later be the manuscript. And I read The Shining, and I went back, and and you know, and put my heart into it because that's what, you know, that's sort of what it, what it needed. Yeah. Um, I was just thinking, you know, everything that you do is extremely deliberate and I think Kim had a little dig about that, like there's lots that's being left out. <laughs> um, but you can also tell that the emotional work um, required to bring these memories to the page was done like a long time before you started mm -hmm. writing and it's kind of a rebuttal to this idea that writing in itself is therapy. Do you resist that kind of characterization? I try to be nice about it when, when people have asked me about mm. that, you know, because I, I understand that, you know, the act of sort of writing and, and you know, writing in your own handwriting is, it, is a deeply sort of therapeutic thing, right? Like, and it's known throughout, across cultures and across history as, you know, this, this thing you can do for yourself that is incredibly healing. And it is incredibly healing, you know, to acknowledge your own story and to, and to write it down and to have it but that was not what I wanted to do mm. with this. You know, I wanted you to have something. Like, I wanted a book for a reader, not for me. And so a lot of the, um, you know, 
my, my, my diary is my diary. Mm. And, and, you know, my therapist is my therapist. I, the, the, the writers I love are entertainers. Yeah. You know, they, they take you somewhere because I think, you know, none of us open a book not wanting it to be good, you know, not wanting to be taken somewhere by it. And the, the writing that I really love has a, has a sense of energy and propulsion mm. to it. You know, I want to be moved along. I don't necessarily want to see the workings out yeah. on the page, you know, I like, I, I quite like it if, if, if that's done somewhere else mm. first. Mm. And I mean, it is a very solitary act, but then mm. the, um, the process of getting it into the book that we all have and should buy if we don't already have um, requires a team. So like, what was the importance of the team that you had to work with at Penguin mm. in terms of giving us what's here now? Do you know, I, I, one of the things I love so much about th this process of writing Grand was, you know, I didn't have to compromise, you know, like, I, and, and I mean, I'm okay with compromise. There's a lot of that, like, if you work in media, you know, everything is kind of by committee anyway. But, um, but with, with this, um, there were so many decisions, you know, like, because I, I did, I knew nothing about, like, a book actually being an artifact and the stuff you have to do you know, for the cover and the presentation mm. and all of those things. And that, that was something that, you know, I, I just loved. I loved the fact that, you know, the image on the cover came from, it came from my sister. You know, I had sent, it's an outtake from a, um, from a shoot I did for a Sunday magazine. I don't know, it was 2006, I think, I've written on the back. And it had been given to me as a Polaroid and I sent it to my mother. And I have no memory of doing this. And when my sister was clearing out my mother's house after, after she died, she found it and she sent me a screenshot of it. And, you know, to, to wake up one morning mm. and have that be there. And I sent it to Claire Murdoch at, at um, Penguin, my editor. And, you know, we both had this moment where we're like, I think that's that's mm. the cover. And then, of course, you know, I had to get into the getting this couriered to New Zealand <laughs> in COVID times. I think it arrived maybe like four days before the deadline. <laughs> Not stressful in any way. Um, that's really magical. Yeah, it was. And I mean, that's part of the reason why, you know, our collaboration with Getting Better, I love that, that collaborative work. Writing's, it's way less solitary than I thought, mm. actually. Mm. That's great. Um, I thought we could have another little reading and then just talk about other projects. Sure. Have you got, have you got something? Have you got something? <laughs> well, I wonder if, because I'm sitting here with a member of the medical professions, <laughs> um, and that, um, that maybe um, we should have a bit that's about a doctor. Yes, we love to talk about ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, this is from, from towards the end of Grand, chapter 27. And um, one of the things I think, you, you know, nobody tells you or nobody told me was how chaotic the end of life can be, you know, for a loved one mm. and how many decisions there are to be made, especially like when your loved one is in the medical sort of system. And, um, and for my mother anyway, she really didn't want to be there. She wanted to go home and um, this bit, that I, shall I read this bit where um, Dr. Byrne is trying to talk to us? It's our first, I mean, this is a situation you may have had, I don't know, but it's our first family conference, most of us, with my mother's oncologist, um, 
Dr. Byrne. He gets us into his office. Me, Daddy, John Paul, Sarah, all crouched around a cluttered white table. Robert's at work, maybe. Nobody is certain. My father looks like a gorilla squashed in a phone box, jammed in between my sister and my brother. Byrne offers his hand to him, says how sorry he is they haven't spoken before now. I asked her if I could meet with you, wouldn't she bring her husband in at least, he'd said on the phone last week when I was still in New Zealand. No, she said, oh no, they wouldn't be able for it. I'd nearly screamed then at the selfishness of it, the absolute fucking full stop of her refusal to do anything to make it easier for anyone. Byrne sits close to us, smelling of soap faintly. She's a lovely person, Caroline, a real lady. She brought us all in boxes of chocolates. Well, yeah, I think she has plenty. <laughs> She's a lovely woman, but she wouldn't let me talk to any of you. We shake our heads in unison around the table. That's what she's like, sure. My dad sighs, big hairy paws on the table. Banana hands, John Paul calls him. His thumb pads have big calluses from unblocking new bins and pushing pipes into joinery. Byrne says, you must have questions. We ask about morphine, hypoglycemia, insulin, and the condition she was admitted with, diabetic ketoacidosis. There is, he tells us, a complex web of different reactions and chemical processes that will eventually kill our mother. Her body is in the process of shutting down. How long that takes is up to every individual. It is happening, though, and it will continue. But she nearly got out last night. She keeps trying to get home. Sarah looks like she's about to start crying. Yeah, I'm sorry, but the hospital really isn't the right place for her. Not at this stage. Tell me, does she know she's dying? We look at each other blankly. I ask him, haven't you told her? <laughs> John Paul tells me later, this is not a conversation doctors ever have, unless patients ask directly. Uh, that might be something for you to think about. Sarah says she'll do it. I can't imagine anything worse than trying to introduce Mammy to her own mortality. The last time I rang her from New Zealand, she was adamant. I'll be grand girl, I've great faith altogether. Mm. Byrne talks up Marymount again. Apparently there's a drinks trolley, but she prefers drinking at home in private. You can smoke there too, which you would think would be a deal breaker. 40 a day since she was about 14, but she remains unmovable. There's 22 people waiting on this bed down in A&E, Carol. Sarah heard him say to her earlier. He was on his actual knees, she said, down at the ground, looking up at Mammy. Are there? She says, looking down at him. Then why don't you just let me go home and give it to one of them? <laughs> In the book, you kind of show rather than tell the social, religious, political forces that shaped your mother's life and yours. And it occurs to me that you are explicitly confronting those forces now in your current work. Is that a fair assessment of what you're wanting to achieve? I, I love it. <laughs> um, it's a very generous assessment. But I, I think it's becoming clear to me that this is the stuff that gives my life meaning, you know, mm. that gives, that, that is meaningful work for me and um, 
it matters, you know, it's, it's a useful channel for that sort of, you know, the wolf, the wolfy rage that you talked about earlier. And, you know, I mean, just to Mihi, to you, getting better changed a lot of things for me. You know, it changed how I thought about things in Aotearoa. You know, I had the privilege of not having to reckon with, you know, with racism mm. before we did that work. And I remember having a conversation with you, you know, and, and Gabrielle Baker, the brilliant um, researcher who worked with us on Getting Better, and we were all talking about what we were going to do next and, you know, what, what was going to... Um, what was going to come up next, and, and I didn't know what I was going to do next because I felt like, you know, there was a level of meaning in that work for me that I really, I didn't want to settle for any work that wouldn't give me the same meaning next. Mm. And I had started writing Grand, and, you know, I knew that my mother's life was a tragedy, you know, that there was tragedy in my mother's life, you know, these two children who, one of whom she gave up for adoption, one of whom died, and... Um, you know, I had seen that as a personal tragedy, but it, over the last few years, looking at the, the reckoning that's happened in Ireland around, you know, the so-called mother and baby homes, you know, mm. which were places where unmarried women were sent to have babies, you know, who were best case scenario adopted, worst case scenario died and, and were put in septic tanks, you know, in, mm. in Chewham. I mean, this stuff is so horrific that I you almost, it would be too much if you, if you, if you fictionalized it, yeah. you know. A and realizing that my mother was part of that time, of that history, of that story, and the way in which, you know, that abuse and control of women in Catholic Ireland, you know, which was at the behest of the Catholic Church and under the sort of um, the control of the church, but with full participation and enforcement by mm. the Irish government and by Irish people. I mean, uh, we're, we're all reckoning with this. You know, mm -hmm. this is, uh, you know, I talk about my grandmother in, in the book, but to realize, to see my mother's story and to see the damage in her life in that context was extremely um, energizing you know, and, and, and useful as a lens. And, you know, I, I think history gives you some distance and a bit of breathing space, but, the, you know, these things are not going away, mm. you know what I mean? I was thinking from your interview with Kim Hill because, you you know, you were talking about all these forces and, you know, um, this really lovely kind of compassionate reconciling of your mother's context. And so she had a limited income, she had the children's benefit and some housekeeping money, nobody else to look after the children and, you know, couldn't exactly ask for someone to take care of you while she went to the pub. Um, and I was thinking about how we don't tend to afford women, um, especially working class women and especially women on benefits, much compassion or empathy, and certainly not when they're making bad choices. That's right, women um, are perfect mothers. And the subversive act of how you did that in your book. Mm. It changed, you, you know, all I remember as a child is just hating pubs, which is very ironic because I went on to really, really <laughs> love pubs. Um, and I still enjoy a good pub. I mean, the funny thing in Ireland, just as an aside, like it's the only place I've ever been where after the AA meeting you go to the pub, you know? And it was fine. Like it's, it's, it, I've only done that in the Irish context, and not for very long, but it was safer than I thought. But anyway, you know, as a child, I was infuriated by the pubs. You know, I was extremely bored. I was extremely isolated. You know, they were smelly. They were boring. And to come back at a distance, you know, with time and distance, and see those afternoons with my mother and her friends as, uh, 
you know, stolen time, stolen time that sustained her, mm. you know, that gave her a world beyond us. She had four children, all of whom, I, I mean, there's two years between all of us except for the youngest. You know, she had, she had absolutely no help, you know, mm. that wasn't the norm, all of these things. You know, those hours that she spent with her friends were something she took for herself. And, you know, I, I, respect, I respect that now, you know, and I, and I don't want to judge her for it. I don't want to minimize it or, you know, I, I'm really glad that I have different choices and different resources mm. and I don't have to do that, but I'm not going to judge her for yeah. That. We might cautiously open up for <laughs> one or two very good questions. Don't mess with the type A. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Do not. And while people are getting organised, I just wanted to ask, in the context of everything that we know about your upbringing, mm. um, what was important to you in terms of building a home and a life for yourself mm. and your daughter? Being there. Mm. You know, for, for all I talk about, you know, respecting my mother's authority, uh, autonomy and the time she spent there, I would much rather if she hadn't been in the pub, you know, and um, if I hadn't had to be there with her. And, um, you know, it's taken me a long time to realize that when there is a, a sort of a primary addiction going on in a parent, it's, it's your lack of being present, you know, that has the impact. And, you know, I knew that in my own life, like in my own friendships. You know, when I stopped drinking, that was something I needed to reckon with. You know, my absence, even though I had been sort of physically present. Mm. So I guess you know that that's the thing that's important is to just try and be present, which is really hard. Like it's just that deeply unsexy work of like turning up to life every day. You know, I mean, some days are better than others. This is a great day. <laughs> you know, I am having a fabulous time. <laughs> but you know, some days are just really hard and some days reality is very hard to bear and I miss mm. the, you know, I miss the ease and comfort of taking the edge off it. But you know, the sort of the comforts of home are, and the simple, they're the simple things. Mm. Like it's really simple, isn't it? Like who knew putting your washing on the line? In Featherstone. In Featherstone. That's right, Emma. Featherstone. It's fine, I'll let it go. <laughs> when I said I was moving to Featherstone, Emma said to me, I'm so happy for you that you're doing this and I'm so happy for me that I'm not doing this. <laughs> <laughs> A metropolitan doctor. <laughs> Don't come across very well on the anecdote. <laughs> um, do we have any questions? We can bring up the lights. I yeah, think. I can't see if you're doing so. I don't know if there's anyone lurking. News to me. Have I terrified you all with my <laughs> parameters? Ah, <laughs> oh, yeah. times from various places. I think it's just that it's stronger, isn't it? And this specifically refers to my friend Rebecca, though, who makes a fantastic cup of tea. And I know that the trick there, she always used to use two tea bags. <laughs> that was a good question. Great yeah. question. We can have another one of those if there is one. Kia ora, Lil, I can see you. Kia ora, Emma. <laughs> Hi, Lil. Um, I have a question. Uh, did your mother know about you writing about her? And in turn, 
how would you feel if your daughter grew up and wrote about your life and her life with you? Yeah. My daily dread. Yeah. <laughs> you imagine? Um, that was a plant, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Great question. Um, yeah, I, she did know. I'm not sure how much. I mean, she knew by the by the end of her life that I was writing, and then and I told her I was writing about her. But you know, she was at that point where I'm not sure that she really cared very much. You know, she said to me, "You can do what you want." I was. I did record her in hospital um, a few times, and she'd sort of give me the side eye, and she'd say, are you taping? And I'd say, I am. And, um, and she wouldn't stop talking, you know, she'd keep talking. Um, so we did, we did talk about it, and um, I don't know if she knew exactly the kind of book that I was going to write, but, um, but yeah, she knew, she knew I was writing. I didn't ask for permission. You know, I suppose I thought I'd ask for forgiveness rather than permission, mm -hmm. but... Um, <laughs> And what would I do? I mean, I hope. Look, you know, we're just throwing every... As, as two writers, we're throwing everything into, you know, Eve or my daughter doing anything else except the arts. Really. <laughs> <laughs> like, professional sport, whatever. <laughs> Go for it. Um, but, you know, th she owns the story of her life. She will own the story of her life. Mm. That's hers. You know, she gets to tell it however, however she wants. Mm. Um, we're coming to the end, but are we getting a vampire novel? Oh. <laughs> Maybe non-fiction. I'm just very bad at writing fiction, I think. You know, as soon as I have to start trying to make things up, it just gets incredibly wooden. I think, you know, the first stories that really got into my consciousness were fairy tales, and everything I try to write is a fairy tale, which have already been done, right? So I, I'm not sure it'd be a vampire novel, but... You know, I'm still obsessed. Like, I'm yeah. still obsessed with vampires. They still... Um, well, vampire nonfiction would be quite a flex, like. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody needs a champion. Just one person who believes in them and their work. Thank you, my dear friend, for your generosity today. Homaiti paki paki mo. You've been listening to a podcast from the 2022 Auckland Writers' Festival Waituhi Otamaki. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.